Church was scheduled to start at 11 a.m., but the homeless man arrived at church at 10.30. He took a seat right in the back of the auditorium and kept to himself. He was wearing a baseball cap, baseball hat, a hoodie and sweatshirt, torn jeans. His shoes were severely worn and his, all of his clothes were dirty. It was very clear he was homeless. He also had a very large unkept beer that he had. People from church began arriving and noticed the homeless man, but they didn't greet him. They walked by him and sat in their usual seats or started to greet their friends and family at church. Everyone noticed him, but nobody talked to him. But at 1045, the pastor wasn't at church and church was supposed to start at 11. 1050 comes, 1055. Finally, 11 a.m. arrives and the whole church has been looking for Pastor Glenn. Where is he? Church is supposed to begin and he's not there. So people start asking each other, have you seen him? Have you seen him? His wife Joyce was at church. So they asked his wife Joyce, where's your husband? She says, well, I thought he was here, but I guess you guys haven't seen him. At 11.05, finally the homeless man gets up from the back pew, walks forward in front of the church. He takes off his hat and his fake beard, and there is Pastor Glenn, the pastor of the church. Everyone had seen him there all along, but nobody had recognized him, and nobody had talked to him. And that story, which is true, by the way, a woman told that to me um, in the last city we lived in. She was in that church that day that he did that, Pastor Glenn Stout. And that is a true story, and I told you that story because it caused us to ask ourselves, do we treat everyone the same based on their race, ethnicity, family, heritage, how they look, things like that? Do we treat everyone the same regardless of how they look? And that relates to the passage that we're going to look at today. If you remember from last week, we read about how Paul and Barnabas and Titus were in Jerusalem, and they leave Jerusalem to go back to Antioch. And Peter, uh, and they had met with Peter and James, and they go back up to Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up that story where we left it off today in Antioch when Peter goes to Antioch. So I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, if that helps you follow a little easier. So Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face, because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Verse 14 says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter, in the presence of all, You being a Jew, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, I'm sorry, I'm reading it. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
since the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verse 17. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be, for if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's God's inspired and inerrant word for us today. And I've titled the message today, When a Leader Loses His Way. And as we read that, you might have noticed how Peter seems to lose his way. And so as we look at this today, we're going to look at the context of what's going on in this passage, verses 12 and 13. We're going to look at the correction that Paul gives to Peter, which is his speech in verses 14 and 21. And then we're going to look at how Paul confronts Peter in verses 11 and 14. So first, let's look at the context briefly in verses 12 and 13. And sometimes it's hard to see the picture that Scripture paints for us because we're reading this 2,000 years later. So let me give us a modern, contemporary example of this uh, meal that's going on and what it might look like. So you've all been to the Rock Top here in town to have dinner, right? Okay. And so if you will go into the Rock Top, you walk in and there's the hostess station here and there's some tables to the left where you can sit six or seven people. So tables to the other side where you can sit six or seven people. And there's a bunch of kind of big tables in the middle where you can have 15 or 20 possibly. And so let's pretend that Moses Lake is Antioch where Peter has arrived, okay? And Jerusalem is maybe Seattle. Let me pick on Seattle or Jerusalem, okay? And so, uh, the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, they are at the rock top having dinner. This is where they live in Antioch, Moses Lake, and Barnabas and Titus and the other Gentile Christians, they like to go to the rock top every night for dinner. So they're there and they have their usual spot on the right side that they sit. And Peter leaves Jerusalem, Seattle, and he comes over to Antioch. Moses Lake, and he wants to hear about the ministry these guys are doing to start churches and disciple people. And he, he arrives in Moses Lake, and he says, you guys know my friend Barnabas? Like, yes, there's only one guy in all of Moses Lake named Barnabas. He's at the rock top every day. So Peter walks in there, and he sees Barnabas and Titus over here to the right. And he, he's just seen them in Jerusalem a little time ago when they came to Jerusalem to ask about the gospel they've been preaching. So Peter goes down and he sits with them at the rock top for dinner. He says, good to see you guys. They welcome him there. And Peter says, I've never been here before. What's good on the menu? And Titus, he's a Gentile. There's other Gentile guys. They say, bro, you got to try the pork chops. And another guy says, no, the pork ribs are really good. And another guy says, no, the, the pulled pork sandwich. That's what you got. It's actually Gibbs' recipe that they use at the Rock Top, okay? Gibbs makes really good pulled pork sandwiches. And Peter, he's a Jew, and I pick on pork. That's kind of a bad stereotype, that Jews don't eat pork. And so Peter's a little unsure about this. But he's rolling with it, and so he sits down and he has dinner with them here on the right side of the restaurant. 
He has a great time getting to spend with them. So they come back the next day and they eat again. They come back the next day. They, they meet for about a week. This goes on, okay? And Peter's there having dinner at the rock top with them, sitting over here on the right, and they order dinner again, pork chops for Peter and Barnabas, maybe. And while they're, they've ordered their meal and they're waiting for the meal to come, some guys walk in the door. And it's James's friends, which he talks about here, acquaintances of James. So it's James's friends, they walk in the door and they look at Peter, kind of like, what are you doing with those guys over there? And they go sit on the left side, these friends of James. They're Jewish Christians, but they, they want to sit separately. And so Peter starts to kind of squirm a little bit. He's looking a little uneasy. He's hanging out with the Gentiles, eating pork. And now these traditional Jews from Seattle have come over and they're sitting on the other side. And so <clears throat> Peter says, you know, I gotta go to the bathroom. He gets up and he goes to the bathroom. And as he comes out of that bathroom in the rock top, instead of turning to go sit with the Gentiles, he pivots and he goes and he sits with the Jews. He's already ordered his food, it's coming, right? So he goes and he sits with the Jews. And then he sits in a way so his back is turned to those Gentiles over there. And Barnabas, Barnabas is always there, is also there. <clears throat> and Barnabas was a Jew, uh, but he became a Christian. His original name was Joseph, but he was renamed Barnabas, which meant son of prophecy or son of encouragement. And so Barnabas starts to get a little uneasy too. And he says, I gotta go to the bathroom too. He gets up and he goes to the bathroom. And as he walks out of the bathroom, instead of going to sit with his Gentile friends, he pivots and he goes to sit with the Jews, the Jewish Christians. That's the context that goes on here. And Titus is sitting over there. He's a Gentile Christian, and he's wondering what is going on. That's kind of the, the picture I can paint for you in a contemporary way um, that I think makes it a little bit more understandable for us. So in verse 12, we learn about what the problem is. I probably should actually read some scripture to explain what it means. Huh? Yeah. Verse 12 talks about what the problem is. So it says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And that's Peter. But when they came, which were James's friends, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So Peter had arrived at Antioch, according to this passage, and he's enjoying food and fellowship with those Gentile Christians. These are the same guys that he had met in Jerusalem and that he had said to Titus and them, your faith in Christ is all you need. You don't need the Old Testament law. You don't have to fill those things. And so he was having a good time with them. And a part of me even wants to applaud Peter here when he's meeting with the Gentile Christians over here on the right and having a good time because God had appeared to Peter in Acts 10. And you're familiar with that vision of this unclean animal that comes down and Peter says, no, I won't eat it. And God says, yes, you can. And Peter says, no, and God says, yes, you can. You know, don't declare something unclean, which I mean and say is clean. And that message was that Peter should go to the Gentiles and share the gospel with them, that it's for everyone. So when Peter's here having dinner with these Gentile guys, we want to kind of encourage him on. He's doing good. He's following through on what he's supposed to, to do. When he used to eat with the the Gentiles, and it's the, the Greek here is in the imperfect tense, which has this idea that he was doing it repeatedly. It was a habit. Like I shared, he'd been doing it for a week, having dinner with him. But, the text says, right there in the middle of 12, but when they came, those are James's friends, 
that arrived in Antioch, and they were Jewish Christians, it says that Peter withdraws himself from the Gentiles, and my translation says he held himself aloof from them, or the NIV says that he was separate, or a lot of translations will just say he separated himself from the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, it was like he was better than the Gentiles now and didn't want to meet with them. But why would he do that? The text says that he was fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter was afraid of what those Jewish men might think of him for eating with the sinner Gentiles. So verse 12 tells us what the problem is. Verse 13 tells us why this is a problem. He says in verse 13, Paul writes, the rest of the Jews joined Peter in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, Peter, when he was in, was in his ivory tower up there in Jerusalem around his friends, he said, you all are the same based on your faith in Christ. Titus doesn't need to be circumcised. You don't need the law. You know, you're all the same based on your faith in Christ. But now that he's out in the middle of real life, mixing it up with real people, he doesn't have that same ability to say that or even do that. The text here calls him a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is someone that practices, uh, hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have higher standards or more laudable beliefs than is the case, according to the dictionary. It's the act of playing a part on a stage. And Peter's kind of playing that part in Jerusalem, in his ivory tower, but here, having meals with Gentiles, he's not acting that same way. This also was a problem because others followed him, like we see in the passage. The real tragedy is that Peter is not the only one that does something bad here. His actions caused others to err as well. Peter was a leader, so people did what he did. It says the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so much that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. And this was tragic, tragic because Barnabas had been working with Paul for over a decade, sharing the gospel with Gentiles and doing those ministries and doing things like that. And he was, if Peter was kind of the main leader, Barnabas was kind of the second main leader. So that's the context of what's going on here at these meals that we have with the Gentile Christians having dinner over here, and then the Jewish Christians. And next we come to Paul's correction, which comes to us in the form of a speech, starting in the middle of verse 14. So let's pretend we're back in Moses Lake at the rock top. So the, the Gentile Christians are over here, Titus and just a few Gentile Christians left having dinner over here on the right. And then the Jewish Christians are over here, which was James's friends, now it has been added, Peter came over, Barnabas, and other Jewish believers have joined them. And Paul shows up to the rock top. He's hungry. He's been down in Yakima sharing the gospel, Euphrata, traveling around. He's ready for a good meal. And he walks into the rock top, and the hostess says, you're here alone, I see. Are you meeting a group of people for dinner? And Paul says, yes, I am. And he looks right, and he sees Titus and the guys he knows. And then he looks left, and he sees Peter and Barnabas and the guys he knows. And he does not know what to do, right? I thought I was coming to have dinner with my friends, but now they're all separate in different sections. And she goes, well, who are you here to have dinner with? And he goes, them. <laughs> and she says, well, you can't sit in two places. So 
Paul is trying to figure out what to do. And he looks over at Titus, and he gives Titus the little head nod to come over here. And so Titus comes over, and Paul says, bro, what is going on here with these guys? And Titus says, you won't believe this, but Barnabas and Peter, they were eating with us. Look, you can see their food that they ordered is at our table, and then they ditched us when these famous people that are friends of James show up. They go over here. And Paul says, that really happened. I says, yeah. So next, we get Paul's response to the situation when he sees it and what happens. And that's the correction that Paul gives in this speech in verses 14 through 21. And in this speech, it really boils down to three things. Paul says in this speech that we're all equal in Christ because of three things. One, we're all sinners regardless of race, Jew or Gentile. We're all sinners regardless of our race. And Jews at that time had this idea that we're kind of the chosen one. We're from the line of Abraham. The Gentiles, they're the sinners, and they're the sinners that need God, things like that. And we even see this sometimes even in our culture today. I used to teach a Sunday school class, uh, and there was a woman in there whose ex-husband was a Jew by birth, by ethnicity. He wasn't a practicing Jew religiously. And she had told me every time she tried to share the gospel with her Jewish ex-husband, his immediate response was always, well, I'm chosen, I'm from Abraham, I'm good. You're a Gentile, you figure that out. It was kind of his message he gave to her, that I'm chosen. And you can see that here a little bit in this passage. In verse 15, Paul says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, he tells them. So it's kind of playing on this cultural background. But then he continues, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Okay, so you all are a Jew, but you don't get righteous based on the law. You're still a sinner. Even as a Jew under the law, we still are not saved apart from faith. And uh, Jews were sinners just like the Gentiles. This is the first part of the speech that Paul says. We're all sinners regardless of race. Second, he says we're all equal in Christ because we're saved through faith, not through works. Verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So we're saved through faith, not through works, and that's why we're all equal in Christ. And if you think about it, what did works look like in the Old Testament? It was all on what I did. I brought sacrifices. I brought offerings to God. I prayed at certain times of the day. But the law was like a huge house of dominoes or a huge house of cards you built. If you removed one little part of it, the whole thing fell apart. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. But faith in the New Testament looked differently. A faith in the New Testament, the focus was not on what I did, but what Christ did. Christ paid the penalty for my sin. Christ took my place. Christ reconciled me from a sinner distant from God to one in the relationship with him. And here in verse 16, we see that emphasized by faith being used three times in this one word, that we are justified, we're declared righteous based on our faith in Christ. 
So we're all equal in Christ because we're all sinners, because we're saved based on faith, not through works. And we're all equal, lastly, because we're saved through Christ, not through the law. Verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here he talks about the law again. We're saved through Christ, not through the law. And the law in the Old Testament, Exodus through Deuteronomy, had 613 rules to follow. That was a lot. And that got added to as the New Testament came along. And you can only approach God through a sacrifice through a priest, right? You brought your sacrifice to the priest, and then he offered it to God and purified you. But in the New Testament, it's different. We get to approach God directly through our faith. As this verse says, he loved us. That's one of the reasons in verse 20 at the very end. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Isn't that a great privilege that we get to know that we are loved by God? The first time I ever remember hearing the gospel was at Vacation Bible School as a little kid. And we would show up at VBS each day. We all stood and we read this one verse every single day to start Vacation Bible School. That's my first time I ever heard the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. That's the verse. It still is burnt into my brain even today. That God loved us. Second here, Christ died for us, as this verse says. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ died for you, and he died for me. Matthew 20, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can't miss this. God did both. He loved us and he died for us. Verse 21 ends the speech. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He loved us and he died for us. And that was a gift. We simply accept that gift through faith, regardless of Jew, Gentile, homeless man, rich, whatever that looks like, man, woman, it's through faith. Pastor Rick Warren said this once, and I've always remembered it. God's grace is for every race. And that's Paul's correction that he's giving here to Peter. Okay, so we've looked at the context of this meeting, and then Paul's correction that we're all equal in Christ based on those three reasons. I think it's important we also look at the confrontation Paul has here and that he gives to Peter. And I want to share with you four tips for what to do when you need to confront someone. Four ways, based on this passage, that we can confront others when we need to confront them. And notice I said when, not if. Okay? It's going to be something we all have to do at some time or another. Okay? As part of um, my reading that I do, I create files for categories that help me as sermons and things like that when I got to preach and I got some fresh material to share with you. And I'll put categories in books and make copies and then file them, and they're all in the office there. And I went this week to grab my conflict file folder, and I was surprised it's one of the thickest folders I have in my file cabinet. So either I like to read about conflict, and that's why I have a lot of material on it, or it's a very common topic 
that comes up in books or magazines or whatever I read and clip from, okay? So four things that will help you as you have to confront people. And this is taken directly from this passage that we see in what Paul does with Peter. Number one, get the facts. 14 at the very beginning says, Paul writes, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul here is seeing with his own eyes what's going on, right? He walks into the rock top and he can see the two groups with his own eyes. He knows from firsthand experience. And when we need to confront someone, the first step is always to make sure we got the facts straight. And sometimes that's difficult because you might not always see what's happening. You might hear it from a person or talk to somebody or get a little note here and there. And so you have to get the facts, but you have to be careful and delicate in how you do that. And one of the ways I think it's great that you get the facts is you know, if you hear someone that's done something wrong and you know you need to confront them or talk to them, you don't walk up to them saying, I heard that, you know, this is the best way to do it. You say, you know, someone told me this. And it doesn't sound like you, but I still wanted to ask you about it, right? Or someone told me you said this to them, and I told them that doesn't sound like the Joe that I know, right? But I still need to ask you about it. That's a real nice, gentle way of trying to get the facts if you need to do that. You don't see the things with your own eyes like Paul did here. So the first part of confrontation is get the facts. Second, know the truth. And the truth is what we have looked at um, in Paul's speech from verses 14 to 21, those three things. And that's the truth of the gospel he references here in 14. And that truth of the gospel is the exact same phrase we looked at last week when Paul and Barnabas and Titus go to Jerusalem and they say, we've been preaching this message that you're saved based on faith. And we don't think you need to be circumcised or follow the law. That's the truth of the gospel that Paul fought for and that he didn't give into. And here he notices that the truth of the gospel is not being followed. And that's what he wants to confront Peter about. And that truth of the gospel, as we've looked at, is that we're all sinners, regardless of race. We're all saved based on our faith, not works. And we're all saved based on Christ, not the law. That's the content of the truth that we've looked at. Next, you've got to act quickly. Verse 14 says, when Paul saw that they weren't straightforward about the truth of the gospel, it says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Paul acted quickly. He didn't wait. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't seem to even really think about it. He knew that what Peter was saying, or what Peter had said in Jerusalem, didn't match what he was doing here. So you got to act quickly. A lot of times problems get worse over time if you don't address them. But there's two times you don't want to act quickly, okay? Two reasons not to act quickly. You don't ever want to act when you're emotional, whether angry or extremely sad, okay? Don't act quickly when you're emotional, whether angry or sad. If you're gonna confront someone or deal with an issue, you've gotta be level-headed. When I used to play golf with my dad and get angry, he used to always tell me, before your next shot, you gotta be cool, calm, and collected, right? Because cool, calm, and collected. Because if you're gonna confront someone, you might be the only person that's cool, calm, and collected, and it's on you to be, be like that. You've got to be centered and at peace. You've got to be confident and firm, but also loving and gracious. Okay? A second reason you don't want to act quickly, um, don't act without prayer. 
Okay, we got a prayer before, pray before and during, pray and ask for God's help with the situation. So to confront someone, get the facts, know the truth, act quickly. The last thing we see here from Paul is that he talks directly. Okay, so in these four steps I'm giving you that I'm just pulling right out of the passage and making observations for you about, these four things you can probably not do one, two, and three, but if you do four, you might sneak by and be okay. But if you do one, two, and three, but not four, it's never gonna work out well, okay? And so you gotta talk directly. The most, this is the most important principle. You have to talk face-to-face -face in confrontation. You don't text, you don't email, you don't fax, uh, you don't, whatever other way there is to talk to people these days that doesn't involve face. FaceTime. One of my wife and I's favorite shows is the show Psych. It used to be on USA Network. If you've ever seen Psych, Abby's seen Psych. And so the, the idea of this show, it was on for eight seasons. It was a surprisingly long time. There's this guy that pretends to be a psychic, and then he has his best friend, and they pretend um, they solve crimes for the police department. And so, but they're really smart and really nice guys, but they're totally chicken when it comes to telling people difficult news. So they occasionally will get an assistant that they hire, and then they're consultants, so they'll go like a month without money, so they have to let their assistant go, and they can never figure out who's gonna tell the assistant. So what's their resolution each and every time? They send the assistant a text message, and then they go to lunch, and they never see the guy again. <laughs> it's always so sad, but it's, the, it's that idea, you gotta talk to people face to face. And here it says, Paul opposed him face to face. This was a direct confrontation. He didn't talk about Peter behind his back. He didn't put it on Facebook. He approached Peter and talked to him directly. And you might be, you might be thinking, what about Matthew? There's that passage in Matthew. Actually, I want to talk about Matthew very last. Okay. So to confront someone, talk directly. And it reminds me of the story of the conflict that was going on in the church. There was a church where the preacher and the song leader were not getting along. This began to spill over into the worship service. One week, the preacher preached on commitment and how we should dedicate ourselves to service. The song leader then led the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. Okay. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on giving and how we all should give gladly to the work of the Lord. The song leader then led the song, Jesus paid it all. Okay. So you got to talk directly. If there's differences of opinion, talk directly. Now on this idea of talking directly, you might be saying, but what about that part in Matthew where Jesus says, if you have an offense with someone, talk to them privately first. This is a little different scenario, and I think it's why the advice is different. Here we've seen Peter is a leader in the church. He's doing something that others are following him and doing. So Paul talks to Peter directly, but in a way he's addressing Barnabas and those other Jewish Christians that have followed Peter. So I think that's why Paul doesn't talk to him privately first. He just talks directly in the form of a speech to everyone because he's correcting the whole group that have gone over here to eat with James's friends, but he's doing it by addressing Peter because he's the leader, if that makes sense. It's a little different context um, and why the advice is slightly different. So as we wrap up our, our time together today, 
Don't we wish we knew what Peter's response was? The chapter just ends right there in verse 21, and we don't know what his response was. But as we close out our time together, it's clear, a lot of commentaries will say, Peter repented and he did the right thing. When you read First and Second Peter that are written later, it's very clear he's got the right position on this issue. And he seems to have repented and done the right thing. So that, let's say we went to the rock top for dinner tonight and we walked into that hostess area. We wouldn't see the Jewish Christians on the left eating by themselves or the Gentile Christians on the right eating by themselves. If we walked in there tonight, I believe we would see Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Titus all sitting in one of those big tables right in the middle having a meal together, laughing, having fellowship, eating some pork chops, whatever that might look like, even ordering a Budweiser if that was okay for their, their background and things like that. They would be enjoying fellowship together and treating each other as equals because they knew that they all shared the same faith and the same Lord.